Have you ever seen a guy with unshaved temples? A woman with head covering in church? How do we know what we should apply and not directly apply? This seems like an easy place for us to fall into the temptation of choosing what is right in our own eyes. If the Bible is for us, but not to us, how can we be faithful followers? Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview of the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. In today's episode, we'll wrap up our uh, giving our Bible reading some cred by seeing what we can now discover. So C-R-E-D is an acronym for Check, Read, Examine, Discover, and we are ready for letter D, Discover. I sat down to read the Bible. That in and of itself is an accomplishment. I opened it up. I saw where I was about to read. I checked the genre, the author, the audience, and the context. And then I read plainly looking for themes. And as I read, I examined the text by taking notes, asking W questions, letting scripture interpret scripture. And I even looked up what seemed like key words in the original language. Interpretation is next. And it must be distinguished from application. That doesn't always happen. While there is one interpretation that is historical, There are many applications that can be carried over into our modern context. And you will never have a solid application void of original meaning. So interpret it for then and then apply it for now. Thinking of that Ruth passage from the last episode, was there anything we should directly apply to our lives? Should we have our girls proposed by burying the feet of boys on threshing floors? No, I don't want that for my daughter. What then do we apply? Some general principles from Ruth 3 would be seeking to help the lowly and loving our neighbor. This passage was providing information on the history of David, not to give us advice. But let's check a passage that is giving advice. We would have to leave historical narrative and go to prose, right? So here we go. It's time to pause and read again. This time, read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to back. What is the context of the passage? Spiritual gifts and the problems of using them improperly. So naturally, the silent women Paul is referring to have to be somehow associated with the spiritual gifts that he's talking about, which happen to be tongues and prophecy. So let's first interpret this for the women in the church of Corinth. Culturally, at this time in Greece, there were oracles. Across the bay from Corinth was the most famous Greek oracle center. Pythia was a woman 
who men would seek for communication from the gods, especially Apollo. No king or kingdom would make a critical decision without her wisdom. It was believed the woman would be possessed by Apollo and she would utter incoherent words or words in deep tones, which the priests would translate to their own discretion. Why? Well, Pythia could only do this at Delphi, nowhere else. It was said that she would inhale the spirit and speak prophecies. Ancient sources describe her as inhaling intoxicated gases. Where are they from? Who knows? Fault lines, heated rock masses, vaporized petrochemicals in the limestone um, is actually the leading theory because she could only do it in the one place, Delphi. Okay, so we have in their history this powerful spirit-possessed lady spouting off messages from the gods. The audience was mystified and confused, much more so than when they came and paid. And so the priest would have to interpret it for it to make any sense. And Paul says, God is not a God of confusion. When Paul writes, be silent, silent seems like a key word to look up. And it's sage uh, or sagao, which is a temporary or topical silence. Okay, that's important. It's not permanent. Paul says, the women are not permitted to speak. Key word again would be speak, which is the word leilin, which actually means incoherent sounds, not, not just talking. So now, women of the church of Corinth, if you do not speak in tongues at church assemblies, you cannot be mistook as a pagan oracle uttering incoherent sounds. So don't speak tongues. What about prophecy? Women could prophesy. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 11.5. But Paul's point here is that they may not participate in the oral weighing of such prophecies at public gatherings. Now, he had also told the male tongue speakers and the male prophets to be silent and orderly at times as well. So what Paul is saying, if a woman wants to pray or prophesy in the church, let her do so while showing the proper respect for church authority. Otherwise, let her remain silent. If she disagrees with a prophecy, especially if it's her husband's, she could ask him about it at home and respect him in public, which is honoring and sacrificial. So it doesn't mean you can't be a a leader. It doesn't mean you can't teach. It doesn't mean you should shut up um, and only learn from your man. So that's what it means to them. How should we apply it now? Well, We build the application bridge of discovery. We don't want to do things in our gatherings, our church gatherings, that would be confusing or considered the equivalent of pagan. We want to respect authority and we want to honor one another in our marriages. It is really that simple. So what's the danger in skipping interpreting it for then first? Well, we'll just make women be silent in our churches for no culturally relevant or spiritual reason. So let's build a couple more application bridges together. This is Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. You can pause and read it.
So Jesus is riffing off the Torah and slinging around his rabbinical authority to reinterpret scripture. And Matthew's trying to help us see Jesus as a new Moses with a new covenant. And what is Jesus' source material? Remember in Jesus' day, it was super common to do a mega quote. You could pull from multiple sources from the Hebrew Bible and quote them together. And that's what he's doing here. In Leviticus 19.12, it says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. In Numbers 30, verse 2, it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or he swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So shout out to Jephthah and Judges, am I right? The audience can see that narrative, that story playing out again in their minds as he makes an oath to God that is super foolish to kill the first thing that exits his home if God gives him victory. And then God gives him victory and the first thing out of his door when he returns home is his daughter. It's crushing. In Deuteronomy 23, 21, it says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. In Ecclesiastes 5, 4, it says, when you, when you vow and vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So Jesus is bringing all of this to memory for his first century Roman occupation audience. And then he says, But I say, But I say, Don't make oaths. (laughs) Do you get it? Jesus is asking people to stop it. Swearing to God and making voluntary promises to him must be paid. So why even do that? It's evil to try to manipulate God. And we are always the ones who end up paying. This is what it means to the original audience. So now let's build that bridge to us. Do we still make pledges to God? Maybe. If so, then the application to stop it still applies. It comes from an evil, manipulative heart and has no good end. When someone doesn't believe your story, do you need to swear to God or swear on a stack of Bibles or even your family to make them believe? No. Let your word be enough or not enough. So this is not about our marriage covenants, or those sort of oaths. This is about the how much we pay out the nose when we try to manipulate God with our oaths. One more, Leviticus 19, 10 through 12. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the water that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. So for the original audience, the Hebrew entering Canaan to be set apart from the rest of the Gentiles had this holy command uh, to never eat shellfish, period. Now that's strict, right? Yeah, it is painful. Well, maybe if you like shellfish, but it's very serious. Shellfish are off the menu. Now, it's easy to say, oh, but all foods have been made clean. Remember the vision to Peter that he had in Acts 10? You quoted it last episode. I do remember that shellfish lover out there. So hold on. First, 
the food was being used by God as a simile for humans. But you're right, the church applied it to literally open up the menu. But in the vision, when God played all the animals, or sorry, laid all the animals out on the visionary blanket and declared them all clean, they were all land animals, reptiles, and birds. There was no fish tanks or aquariums for any lobsters or crabs or anything else. So the New Testament does not actually help you. However, we do need to consider a few things. The law of Moses was for a designated group of people for a designated period of time and a designated piece of land that does not match any of our situation. So the laws of Moses aren't to us. Now they are for us, of course. We are measured as failures according to them, um, or more purely put, the laws written on our Gentile hearts that we follow instinctively are the same laws, according to Romans 2.14. So the law measures us all as failures, and the law measures Jesus as a success. He extends his victory to us, and we claim his work, and then we follow him. And he asks that we love God and love others, and this will fulfill all the law. This is the law of Christ. So when James the elder was asked to communicate to the new Gentile Christians what parts of the law they should follow, it was decided they didn't need to follow any of it to be saved, but they could follow four parts to be sensitive to their new Jewish brothers in Christ. They could abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, from strangled food, and from food with blood in it. Nothing about shellfish. Fast forward to 2021, we are thankful to Jesus for his fulfilling the law for us. We follow him in fulfilling the law in the basic realms of loving God and neighbor That's enough of a challenge for a lifetime. We are in the clear for shellfish. Now, I'm going to continue to pass, but not for any spiritual reasons, only because I think that they're gross. Though, wouldn't it be on brand for a Christian to cite spiritual reasons for abstaining from things they don't struggle with or desire at all? (sighs) That's a whole other topic. Does this application bridge feel too broad or too wide to you? Do you feel like you're getting away with more than those in the past? Well, that's because you are. In Galatians 5, Paul writes about this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision which was the Jewish religious markings of the Old Covenant. If you accept this, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Skip down to verse 13 for time's sake. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You could sum that up. With great freedom comes great responsibility to love. 
Thank you for listening. Anakonosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, we'll talk about the grand narrative of the Bible.